purchases aren't always perfectly straightforward. Should contractual arrangements be immune to changing circumstances? How do you discern who's responsible when expectations aren't met? Can you be held responsible for your response to a situation you didn't cause? Is there any entity which should be immune from accountability? And are the police just the best gang in town? Stay tuned. Philosophers. Philosophers. All right, David, what are we talking about today? So uh, this is a uh, this is something that I uh, saw a video about this week and uh, it sounded like an interesting topic. I have a working title, um, Expectations in Business. Um, the the idea here is when when you're when you're doing business with somebody where if we go beyond a simple transaction obviously the, the, there's the, the very simple transaction of i hand you cash you hand me thing our business is finished sure if we have ongoing business then by the very nature of this the fact that we can't uh, foretell the future perfectly um we have to make some assumptions about what future conditions are going to be. We're talking about like contracts necessarily. Or... Um, could, could be contracts or uh, in the, the particular example that uh, they got me thinking about this is a lease. Okay. Um, so like, for instance, if I sign a lease where you're going to uh, uh, let me use a space for a year, it's a typical length for a lease. Um, there's an assumption that the place is still going to be there in a year, for instance. Um, but we, we can't we can't know that for sure. Um, now, we can, of course, cover this in the terms of our lease. Um, or I think I think in the case that the, the space is just destroyed by a natural disaster or something like that, most people are just going to be reasonable about it and say, okay, well, you don't have to pay me rent because the, it's gone. There is no space anymore. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting here is that this... This concept of, oops, this didn't work out the way we expected, seems to sort of exist on a spectrum, kind of. Um, I think, like, so, the, the thing that goes through our heads if the space is destroyed is, well, we couldn't have seen this coming. Obviously, I didn't rent this space to keep paying you for it even though it's not there anymore like i'm getting no i i I paid for it i leased it from you because i saw value in it over the next year right it it was going to be not an asset necessarily but in in the traditional sense but i'm i'm leasing utility yes i'm leasing it because i can pay this amount but get more than that for what it's providing me right this is this is particular to commercial spaces it's different from renting a home sure um so i yeah i'm expecting to get a certain amount of value out of it um now suppose something happens so so uh, i'm i'm the uh, hypothetical business owner suppose something happens uh where i'm no longer able to run my particular business it's, this this something is outside my control and it's not a market force it's not like i'm a uh, i'll steal the example from the video that i'll i'll reference uh i'm not a vcr salesman in 2020 who obviously is not going to make any money running running that business now um so it's not it's not a, a thing of market force 
Um, particularly the the example that was given that I'm basing this on is it was a, a, a temporary legal mandate that this type of business not be allowed to open. Now, I signed a lease with you with the expectation that I will be able to do business in this space for the whole year. Right. If three months into the lease, it turns out, oh, I'm actually not going to be able to do business here. The question is, do I still owe you the same amount? Should mm. I still have to pay my full rent now that I cannot get the utility that I reasonably expected at the beginning of the lease? Right. I guess it depends on who you are. Because <laughs> um, yes. I can see it from both sides. Like, if I'm the landlord, the space to me is my income. Leasing that space is my business, you know. So I leased it to you under the assumption that you would pay me for a year for that space. Now, regarding the use of that space, and this is another thing that kind of depends because not all spaces are equal, right? Um, I remember... I used to be a big fan of Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> this is an odd place for going to, but uh, he talked about restaurant space rentals and when to pay up and when to pay down. You know, like um, if you're renting a space adjacent to the penthouses of a hotel lobby, right? Like at a high end hotel, you're going to pay more for that because the type of business is going to be brought to you by that location is going to justify. If, if, so long as you do your job as a cook and you open a nice restaurant, sure, it'll it'll pay. Uh, but if you're not going to service that type of group and you're wanting to sell like hot dogs and right, if you're going to open a McDonald's, yeah, you know. yeah, d don't do that. You know, open it. You're going to open it in a place in which those the people who are most likely to use your service will will get it. You know, so. But right, yeah, that that seems to be sort of the crux of this is that the the value of a space for a business depends highly upon what type of business it is. Exactly. Well, and, and a lot of real estate people know this, you know, they obviously, well, I mean, this is why commercial uh, uh, spaces lease for more than residential spaces right. per square area. foot. Yeah. Um, is that yes, because specifically because of its location, it's in a business district. We're going to ignore zoning laws, even, even ignoring that, like there's just the, the way that, towns develop is you have places where all the business happens and places where people want to live sure so the business district you want to open you like you don't want to open a business in the middle of someone's neighborhood like you're just not going to get the traffic right because you're way out of the way you want to be in the business district so you're going to be willing to pay 10 times the rent or whatever to be able to do that because that's where all the business is right and so then but then of course this is still also dependent on what type of business it is Right. Like if you're an industrial space, you don't want to be open in the middle of a shopping center because, well, and, and in that case, you're going to be, you're going to be paying the premium for being in a shopping center, but not reaping the benefits because you're not looking for foot traffic. And not only that, but you're probably going to be paying a higher cost for shipping. You know, a lot of industrial spaces zone the way they do naturally. It's not so much that the city says, well, we want all the dirty, loud businesses here. They clump together because they're going you know it's beneficial for distribution and shipping yeah. you know if if i'm if i run a car you want a, you want a low traffic area so that you can actually get your stuff out where it needs to go Ex exactly and if i want to run a concrete plant well it doesn't matter to me how many how, what the foot traffic is around my concrete plant it doesn't my customers aren't there my customers are probably right. in fact the foot traffic is getting in your way right i need i need a place near maybe distributors and so yes. that if i need to ship something to them i can ship it across the street or down the road not across town or worse, you know, or 
it needs to be near a in, in the American way, you know, an interstate where or a highway that's supports trucking, you know, because that's going to make it a lot easier. Yes. So and, and if I source materials, well, if I, I need to source the sand and water, well, if there's a sand company, I'm going to it makes more sense to set up next to them. Like an industry tends to clump up because industries work with other industries, not so much with you know, your more direct commercial sales. So same thing, you know, commercial groups bond together because when people shop, shopping is an activity. People typically don't go shop for one thing at a time anymore. You know, if I'm a clothing store, I actually do want to be near all the other clothing stores to compete directly with them for the same foot traffic Mm. and so on and so forth. So yeah, it it makes a lot of sense and why those things get zoned the way they do. It's not so much the city wants it to be planned that way. It's that businesses want to be near each other. Because they can directly compete and or benefit from their surroundings. Yes. But when you when it, when we're looking at you know this specific instance, you know these assumptions being made, you know if you're a landlord, you you only want to lease two businesses that are going to pay you. Now the other, yeah, obviously you as a landlord are not going to lease a place to a VCR salesman who you think is not going to actually be able to pay his rent. Exactly. And not only that, but another layer to this is that with commercial property, especially um, storefront style commercial property, uh, one thing you don't normally see in like residential leasing um, that you do see with commercial leasing is in commercial leasing, they typically will renovate the space to fit their specific need. And there's a cost associated with like if I'm leasing a storefront and the shop comes in that sells large objects that aren't like window shopped there, they might renovate the space to have a large inventory area and a small front. Whereas if I'm leasing it to like a clothing outlet, well, all of your inventory needs to be on display. So the shopping area might be large with small inventory space in the back. And when the business comes in, they typically work with the landlord to renovate the space to fit what they need. And the landlord cares because I'm kind of, def- it's more beneficial to me to lease. The, the this- landlord is a type of investor really. Yeah. It's like, I want to lease this space. If I'm leasing this space to, um, I have the options of I can lease it to a clothing merchant or I can lease it to like a cell phone repair place, right? Those are two very different types of businesses. Well, if if this property is around a bunch of other boutiques and they're going to want to renovate this space into like something that like that of a boutique, I'm going to lease it to them because once it's renovated that way, because I don't pay for the renovations, the, the tenant does that, but I'm paying for the time it takes to renovate. And <clears throat> If either that business comes in and does well or it doesn't do well for their own independent practices over which I have no control, if they go out of business and fail and I need to find a new tenant, if it's already kind of configured, I can offer that and market that as a market the work of someone else to look, you don't have to renovate the space. It's already ready to go. Yeah. It's already set up for another boutique. So just move your clothes in your people and maybe your business practices are better than the previous tenants and I'll still make money. Whereas if then the cell phone place wants to come in, it's like, well, I'm going to have three months of downtime in which... Well, the, I'm still getting paid for the lease, but the company there is not going to be turning any revenue. And that it's a risk. It's a risk. And I'm trying to minimize risk as much as I can. So, yeah, I totally see it from the perspective of the landlord is that, well, I, I rented you this space and that is my business. Like you paying me for that space is my business and is what makes it viable. So that's the reason I'm entering into contract with you. Um, as far as the assumptions the landlord makes, they are in somewhat of an investor role because... They, they would be in an invest, though they, they kind of are in an investor role because if I intentionally pick businesses that could not pay their leases, then I'm a bad landlord. Yes. You know? 
you're going to go out of business. Yeah, you're going to waste all your money. Exactly. And someone else who's better at renting spaces to appropriate outlets is going to end up buying me out because, and they're going to put people there that make better. So it's just, just it's these two ecosystems of business that they're functioning similarly. They're both trying to generate supply to meet demand and supply in the landlord's case is a space, but the demand tells them what they should lease in this space, if you will. It's a very oversimplified way of looking at it. Um, but in the case you brought up, there is an outside factor to both of these entities that neither accounted for. But because of this circumstance, money's being lost. And what's being negotiated is who's eating that loss. Yeah. Is it the landlord or the tenant? Well, I, well, really, it's the... It's Is it the tenant or is it both? Because the tenant's still not making money, even if he's not paying rent. Well, I, I guess I'm saying, how do you allocate the total loss, right? Yeah. Because it's like, well, and and to avoid getting into this whole, well, there were potentially X number of dollars per month to be made in this space. And the landlord's agreeing to take a fixed dollar amount per month of that yeah. to make their business. And then anything over that, the business gets to keep, uh, the, the, the tenant gets to keep, Yeah. right? Um, but in this case... There, that value is not there anymore. So, yeah, the, the the crux of it, I think, is is here. So, there there's an assumption being made. If you're going to make the case that, okay, I'm no longer for for this period of time allowed to operate my business in the space that I rented. Um, if that's the case, then this space is worthless to me the owner of this business that can't open. But if any business is allowed to open, then that means this space could be useful to someone else. Right. So that, yeah, the, the, the question, the question becomes like, is it, is it okay? Like, is it, is it right for me? Well, obviously you need to come to an agreement with your landlord, but like, yes. but is, is the appropriate response to come to an agreement where you pay less rent because you're getting less utility? Like you should obviously have to pay something for having the space reserved. Right. Um, but like, and, and the, a, a suggestion that, that I've heard is that you should pay like the equivalent that you would expect to pay for storage space of the equal area. You're storing something in the space. Um, but I think also, yeah, you must consider the landlord's other course of action that they could take, depending on the terms of the lease, which is to evict you and lease it to someone else who can actually make money in the space. Yeah, and I think that's an in that discussion can go multiple ways. So if I'm the landlord, <clears throat> and let's say you opened up a... Uh, froze, uh, I'm going to pick a really niche business, but it's one that's been regulated before. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so you're going to open up a tobacco shop okay, or a vape store. I'm going to, sure. I'm going to lean on that example again, cause I'm more familiar with it. Yeah. So, so you start selling vape stuff and, uh, you ran your projections, you know, you, 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 you can be profitable you should be able yeah, to be, I've profitable. got my business plan. We're ready to rock. You're ready to rock okay. and roll. And for the first three months you do great. You go gangbusters, you know, you make plenty of money. Uh, then the law changes. Raising the age of those who can consume. Well, you look at the data you've been, able, you've been able to collect and realize that a majority of your customers were in the 18 to 21 group. Well, that's the group that just got cut. They can't right, legally so I just purchase. lost a huge fraction of my business yet. Right. 
Now, there are, to add to the complexity, you know, maybe this law is a city ordinance. You know, it's something that can be changed and you're advocating for it to change. But until it does, you're on the decline. Like you realize you cannot support your business anymore on this. Even though the location was perfect for it, you can't support it. Now, yeah, my market was arbitrarily removed from me. Yeah. Right. Now, the landlord didn't do that to you. No. Um, but the landlord now sees that the business that he's chosen to fill this spot can't make money anymore unless things change. But that space might still be valuable for a different type of business. So from the landlord's perspective, you get to make the risk assessment of, okay, I potentially continue my lease with someone who, as of the way things are going, are not going to be able to afford the space. Yeah. This person is going to go out of business. They're going to go out of business unless something dramatically changes. Um, but I, the same front would be great for selling, you know, um, brownies or whatever. Like I'm not, I, I could put sure. a small bakery here and it would do just as, it would do, it wouldn't do, it wouldn't have done as well as this business would have in the previous market. But it's going to do better than it's doing now. Exactly. And I can foresee. Yeah. So, and I, the question is, it also kind of depends on the term of the lease. Like, can the landlord terminate the lease with any kind of notice or whatever, you know, how that works out? But it needs to be an honest discussion between the landlord and the, the tenant. But if I were the landlord, I would say, look, you know, you and I both know how this is going to go. Um, and so I'm going to want to fill this spot. Now, I'm incentivized at this point to just get them out as soon as possible and replace it. Now, and that can mean things like, I'm just going to terminate your lease. You don't have to pay me for this space anymore, but get out in 30 days or 60 days or whatever. Um, or you say, you know, I'm going to be shopping for a new merchant to put in this spot. And as soon as I find one, that's when your 30 day, 60 day, 90 day start. You know, if the term of the, of the lease allow that, yeah. you know. But uh, what happened in this specific case that made it so interesting to you? Yeah. So this was a case, I think the business was a restaurant. Okay. Um, and, uh, so they were, they were, uh, forced to close temporarily. Um, so this, this ended up going to court. I don't know. I don't know the details of how it ended up in court. I don't know if they were refusing to pay rent at all or what, or, and, and I don't know if it was a refusal or a complete inability, just money was gone. Uh, regardless, the court ruled that because the business was not able to open, that the space was worthless. Hmm. And therefore, the landlord had no claim to rent. That sets in a couple of interesting potential precedents, yes. in my opinion. The first of which is, can you even be a landlord over a space that's, air quotes, valueless? Because... I love my swamp. This is my pile of junk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Get out of my swamp. <laughs> um, and the next thing is, do you have to prove in some legal way that your space is valuable? And, and what's the standard and burden of proof for yeah. that? And and did the landlord even have the opportunity to do that in the trial? Like, obviously, we probably I, don't, I don't know. know. I haven't actually read the, the, the case. Because uh, I could easily see this judgment coming down and say this is a... Yeah, we're going to bring zoning laws into it now because it might matter. But yeah. say this place is zoned for commercial food. Like, that's why it's zoned the way it is. It- now, yes, yeah, now you could make the case it is worthless. This place is designated to be a food service business. Right. Which is legally not allowed to open at this time. So, yes, it is useless for the time being. Right. Um. But, yeah, but if, if any legal business could open there, 
then it can't really be called worthless. Somebody could get value out of it. Well, not only that, but what is what does it mean for something to be worth something? It, all I that think someone's willing to pay for it. Exactly. So all I would have to say is the landlord says, "Well, here's my next tenant ready to go. He's ready to pay me for it every month. Here's how much it's worth. Yep. And here's how much he's willing to pay." So it does have value, regardless of whether or not you think it's you, the court, or you, the current slash soon to be previous tenant, thinks it's worthless. It is worthless to the previous tenant, and under the circumstances of the previous tenant, but it would not be under the new tenant. So while, and that's what I think really kind of sticks out to me is like, oh, you can't rent this space because it is currently valueless under its current situation. That says nothing about how much value it could have under a different tenant. You know, um, I think using a, a tenant as the standard for how much money that could be made in a space under that situation is how you get stuck with a tenant who just never pays his rent, but owns that property so long as, well, it doesn't own the property, but can hold it and, and right. has control. Yeah. yeah. And in doing so, holding it denies the landlord any income for as long as that situation exists until either the tenant who is incentivized to move if they could make money elsewhere Right, because the tenant's not making any money either, you know, or you could just be every bitter tenant and say, I'm just going to take you down with me, you know, <laughs> like saying it's a, this, this is the only space this landlord owns. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't like that a court ruling is necessarily being made on speculation though. Um, but I also don't like that it's being fixed to an arrangement that could easily change if people were allowed to freely change it, you know, because me as the landlord would even be willing to like, say okay well i will forgive all of your payments you weren't able to make in this time you don't owe me for it just get out you know what i mean because i i as a landlord would not want to even go through that process of trying to back collect rent i, I i'm still losing money as long as they don't pay and i'm having to spend money to make sure they pay you know and you could do the cost benefit on that like if it was an obscene amount of money and you for cheap could try to get someone to collect maybe it's worth it but Either way, at time zero right now, I'm still not making money. You know, I, I need them out to maybe put someone in there that could, you know. Um, but looking at it from the tenant's perspective, I, I absolutely do somewhat agree that it's not the tenant's fault that they're not making money, right? I, it, especially under this situation you outlined. Right, completely unforeseeable circumstance. Exactly. And not only that, but circumstance under which you had no control. Because sometimes it's unforeseeable, but you could have done something to avoid it. But in this case, there's nothing you could have done to avoid it. It wasn't your choice in any way, shape, or form to be shut down. So yeah, I don't think they should be necessarily held to that. Because... Or at least not fully. I think both the landlord and the tenant assume the risk of that arrangement. Yeah. And so if it doesn't work out, they both... And, and I think the tenants, obviously, they're losing money on their business from being shut down. I don't see any reason why the tenant shouldn't suffer the same consequences because they both entered into that arrangement frequently, uh, freely. So... But as, so as far as like how you resolve who pays for what, I think it's pretty straightforward. Well, if they can't pay... They can't pay and it's not their fault and they're already losing money. So sorry, landlord, you're just not still owed rent for that space in my opinion. But at the same time, I don't think at this point you should be forced to house that tenant either. You know, I think you should be free to go ahead and evict them for it because just because they can't make money doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to make money, you know? 
that's my that's my opinion on it anyway yeah um i think i think maybe where 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 i was uh possibly seeing a, a distinction that could be made um because i because i can see I, I i still don't necessarily know that the that the law needs to get involved but i can see it making it a special circumstance that this is specifically a temporary shutdown. We know it's temporary because we know exactly what caused the shutdown, this being a a legal action. Um, And we know that it will be lifted at some point. Um, Like, it's not like, uh, it's not, specifically because the legal action was specified to be temporary. This is distinct from, the uh, hypothetical vape shop who had its its uh, uh, market uh, cut cut out from it by illegal action uh, but we cannot reasonably foresee that that legal action will be undone right like, as far as we know this is going to last for decades this business has no chance right um, at least not in this current space yeah they might be able to reconfigure for a cheaper space and still service a smaller portion of their previous market right and become viable again but it's not in this space yeah so what do you think do you think that's a meaningful distinction or does it not i think it is meaningful um and here's why um let's let's make it not the government uh, for a minute okay say a other business moves in next door and uh, it's say it's a soap company let's just make it easy okay and they cause a they have an accident right okay and because of the their actions uh you have to shut down your business because there's a hole in the wall a hole in the wall a yeah. gas leak or something like that there's a chemical spill yeah and it's going to take a month to clean up and the government says well by law you can't do this but it's not the government's fault that you're shut down necessarily it's it wasn't the original action that caused the shutdown or, or just say you shutting down because you can't safely house your employees in this building with these chemicals floating around. What would the tenant so, do? Like, like a, like a pipe burst or something like that. Yeah. That, yeah. So well, it's not the tenant's fault, but what we would, know that it will be resolved. Right. But the landlord says, well, I still need rent to get paid because now I'm losing money on this space. Who's paying for it or who could legally be sued to cover this the damage. This is different though. Okay. This is a different scenario because in this case, because the space has been rendered, da- rendered, rendered <laughs> dangerous, uh, nobody can operate a business out of this space. So the landlord has no option. He can't just evict the tenant and uh, lease it to somebody else. The space, it truly is temporarily worthless. Well, it, but here's the thing. if If the example we're talking about was zoned to where only a certain type of business could be there. And it is also a space in which no other business of that type would be allowed to be open there. I think it's the same. Yes. So if that's the case, like the, the, this analogy works best with the, this is only a restaurant space and all restaurants are under the same mandate mm-hmm. right now. So in my mind, that's a similar situation. The difference being it's a, you have a guilty party that caused this. And you can go to that guilty party and say, you cost me business. You know, you're, you're costing me money. Mm. You should pay for it. Yeah, that's true. And damage We can, we can address, yeah. Uh, civil damages in that case. Yeah. Cause it's, it's directly the neighbor's fault. 
Right. Now, in, case. in, in, now let's go back to the example in which it's say the government saying you can't open a business in this space. Okay. Why can't you sue your government for damages for preventing you from doing business anyway? Why does your government get to choose that cost benefit analysis for you to say whether it's a safe or not business for you to operate? And if they make that decision, then they're going to assume the responsibility because they're the ones making the cost benefit analysis there or the risk assessment and saying it's too risky. You need to stay closed. It's like, okay, so it's your choice or it's through your actions that I'm unable to make money. So I need you to pay me for the damages for that because regardless of the realistic circumstances out there, you're taking away my freedom to assume that risk. So pay me until I can assume the risk for myself again. Cause, and, and that's to me where it comes down to is who's, re, who, who's assuming responsibility here. Yeah. You know, cause if the business were allowed to stay open, but chose to close, like that's a different circumstance. Let's walk through that example real quick. Say the restaurant says, Hmm, well, it's not safe for me to operate my restaurant right now. I am choosing to shut down for the safety of my self and my employees. And the landlord says, that's not a risk I want to take right now. I would go find a restaurant that will take that risk and make money. That's different. That's that's the tenant saying, I'm not assuming the risk. Okay, then you can leave and I'll find someone who will if I'm that kind of landlord. And in that case, if there is someone willing to take that spot, there's no reason why business as usual can't resume. Because now you're forcing it on the landlord, your choices as a business owner and the tenant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, get out because <laughs> I need to make money. Um, but if neither of you got to make that choice, a government entity did. Well, the government entity is the one who's saying, I'm assuming the responsibility for the safety of all people using this space. Okay. If you're taking the responsibility for that, then you also need to take responsibility for the bill. You need to take responsibility for the consequences of that decision. And that's the way I think it should play out personally. As much as I hate seeing government spending money back on businesses that they don't even have, it's the people's money. In this case, if you just look at the government as a singular entity, it, it makes sense to me to kick them the bill and say, all right, cool. Well, if I can't open because you said so, then you can pay the bill for the obligations that I signed up for, not knowing you were going to do this. Just like you would if the neighboring company caused a chemical accident, you know, same thing. Even though it's not the government's fault, maybe, that the circumstance that forced the government's hand to do this, if you will, the government still made a choice. The government didn't have to do that. Even if they argued that they did, they didn't actually have to do anything. Well, right. Well, and if they, if the government were responsible for any, uh, uh, damages in a case like this, that would weigh into the cost benefit analysis. Like, yes, they, they're having pressure, whatever political pressure there is to, to make that decision. That might be counteracted by the millions or billions they might have to spend to shut down businesses. Yes. And, and I think that's what should happen because now, because, because assume the government, like, because if we're saying the government had a choice, let's look at the other alternative. So the government doesn't shut you down, but just says you shouldn't be open right now, but we're going to let you ch- make your choice. The business chooses to be open anyway and say people do get sick or people do get hurt. Now the government's not, on, not responsible for that. You know, the choices of the business. Yeah. And it, and the business having assumed that risk would be expected to. That's what, that's why it's called a risk. Yeah. Yes. They would have to assume the responsibility for the consequences of their actions. And then you could even go further and say, well, it's the customers who chose to come in here, you know, and be potentially exposed to dangers as long as they were informed. 
So the customer took that risk. So the customer is responsible for covering their own health. And now we're back to where we started originally, which is it's the individual who gets to make that cost-benefit analysis and be responsible. But when you take that choice away, you also need to bear the responsibility of that choice, in my opinion. And I don't think the government should be exempt from making that from from that paradigm. If you're the one who's asserting control and saying, I'm in control, I'm making the decisions, you need to be responsible. And if you're not for the negative, you can't be for the positive. You can't claim to have saved lives if you're not also willing to accept the damages. And that I, you're right. I agree that now that you're making that decision for people and being responsible, that will affect the decisions you're going to make just like anyone else. You should not be exempt from that just because you're the government. You know what I mean? That's, that's the way I see it. You pay, pay up. If, if you made that choice and you lose, you pay. Now the only thing, and, and now that that's essentially kicking the bill back down to the citizens that elected you. But if you go full circle, it's back down to the individual who, well, you chose to put these people in office and they cost the city money is that what you want to do? You know, like, are you comfortable seeing your tax dollars going to be paying for businesses that can't open? If you're comfortable with that, then it shouldn't be a problem. The government would still make that decision. Like, yeah, well, the majority of the citizens think this is still a good idea. We'll pay. And there's no issue here, you know, as far as I'm concerned, but someone's got to pay. Like, that's the thing is there's even in an environment in which no one made a decision to cause the, the, the original problem that doesn't make you exempt from how you respond to that problem the way I see it anyway. You know, I think there's, and there's good examples of this, right? Um, let's, let's take it to, this is a somewhat extreme example, but um, in the United States, when the government decided to test nuclear devices, right? Mm-hmm. Now they had a choice on where to do that. And they chose the middle of nowhere, South the Southwest, you know, in the desert. Right. Why did they choose that spot? Like what's the cost benefit of choosing that place over anywhere else? There's nobody there. Exactly. They made that choice informed, knowing that there's very, very few people there anyway, but of the people that were there, that ended up getting radiation sickness for the choices of putting that there. They paid, they covered those people. Same thing with anyone that chooses to join the military. The government offers benefits for those people because of the choices that the government gets to make after you've signed up. You know, we have a whole department in of the United States government that's designed to take care of veterans. And that's the government's way of owning the choices they're going to make under that arrangement. How is this any different? You know, that's my question is how, and because the government didn't know what wars they may get into and where they may send soldiers. The soldiers signed up knowing they might have to go fight a war, but they also signed, but what made people sign up is knowing that I have, I'm covered. You know, if I, if I get into a fight and I get injured, there's a department that's going to take care of me. And it's because I'm giving up my freedom to choose where to go for a while. And the government's bearing that responsibility for its soldiers. Why is this any different? You know, I don't think there should be any government action that's free from paying the negative consequences just because you're the government. The issue though is, is who's going to make them because they have the monopoly on power, like in this dynamic, you know, if you have the monopoly on force, then that also kind of factors into your decision-making. Well, I don't have to pay. Who's going to make me. Yeah. And that's, there's the void where it's like, well, who is going to make them and who can, you know? So in the, in the, in the area of, 
of this business, it's like, okay, well, the government's refusing to pay up who you can call, you know, and the best you can do is a lawsuit. Hopefully. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like the government should pay up in my opinion. I mean, and and don't be wrong. I can, I can understand people having a problem with that. They're like, well, but they're the government. It's their job to take care of people. And that's, that's a deeper philosophical question. Sure. Is, Is it their job? You know, did they, are they sticking their nose where they don't belong or are they? And, you know, whether it is their responsibility or role or not is kind of irrelevant, I think, to the question of, well, if, in, if they are there, you know, let's just, we don't even have to assume that they have the responsibility. They already took it, you know, to, to, to say that. I don't know. I, I just can't, I, I'm having, I'm trying to come up with a, you know, devil's advocate argument for why they shouldn't have to pay, but I can't think of one. You know, I, I, and I'm a little biased here cause I'll, you know, sure <laughs> of where I sit, but I would love to know if someone could tell me that like, okay, what, what is your reason why the government shouldn't have to pay for shutting these businesses down and costing them livelihoods? You know? So I can think of an extreme example, maybe that, okay. uh, that, that can illustrate, uh, the, the concept at this point. Um, so, uh, so it's the, it's the government's job to protect the people. We'll, we'll say, um, so in this case, we're deeming that, or we're, we're, we're taking it as a given that for this business to be open is risky to the public, those who may enter and possibly, uh, uh, others who, uh, uh, those people might affect. So suppose there is, I don't know, uh, so a gang, let's say, um, and so this this gang is uh, d- doing what gangs do and and bullying people to take their money. Extortion. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, they're they're extorting the local business owners. Okay. The the uh, the the police come in to crack down on this, and let's say they uh, they do a thoroughly good job and they actually uh, uh, completely uh, disrupt the the gang's operations and stop them from being able to extort. The local businesses. Now, the government has taken away the business from the gang on the grounds of public safety. Like obviously, there. This is okay. I, I picked a perhaps too extreme example. Sure. Um, where where these people are actually being violent and extorting. So, but okay, we can we can loosen that a little bit, and let's say you know someone is selling. Someone is selling, I don't know, kids' toys or something like that, but they have some sort of dangerous radioactive component. Okay. That's um, more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sadly, it is more realistic. Yeah. So, radioactive kids' toys. Okay. The government says, oh, no, no, no. We, we got to stop that. We can't be having... Uh, uh, kids with cancer. Kid, yes. Um, so, they stop that business. Fine. Does the government have to pay now? Hmm. For stopping somebody from doing something dangerous, even just because they were making a business out of it. Hmm, it's a good point. I think. Well, to me, the root problem is not that someone's selling radioactive toys; it's people buying radioactive toys. <laughs> um, but if the business was not honest about it 
and right that's the thing people. obviously yeah they'd be doing this yeah no one's gonna buy a toy for their kid knowing that it's dangerous yeah. but that's the thing is the real the reality of the situation is is if the government just made it obvious that like okay i won't i will pay you damages equal to the number of people who would knowingly buy radioactive toys from you and if let's that, take a survey yeah. let's take a survey real quick and if <laughs> no one would do that then yeah fine i owe you zero dollars for shutting you down but if a handful of people said yeah i'd love to buy some radioactive toys it's like well i guess i was wrong my assessment was bad here's five dollars here's five dollars <laughs> you know that, that's the way i see it you know um but i actually kind of like your gang analogy for a minute let's, okay. let's go back to that <laughs> one there, there's an interesting thing at play here. oh boy <laughs> okay so the, traditional mob style yeah, we're coming to offer you protection, you see? Yes. You got to pay your protections. Nice it's business you got here. It'd be yes. a shame if something happened to it. Yes. It'd be a big shame if this window got broken, you know. And anyway, yeah. stop using offensive accents real quick. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so they're they're it's it's a racketeering effort is yes. what they're doing. So <clears throat> So the let's say I'm the business owner in this case. I'm going to place myself in that position. I own the restaurant that I'm now paying protection money for. Air quotes. Okay? They ask me to pay the grand total sum of $10 a month for protection. Okay. Okay. Now, say I live in a small town where there's a police force that, uh, let's just say I don't have a police force quite yet. Okay. Okay. But the, the, or there's like one sheriff, but his main job is to make sure that when I call him, you know, he removes one bad person away from me. And then my tax, and that, and that ends up coming out of my taxes for $5 a month. Right. So I go to the, me and enough businesses get together and say, okay, this is, this is BS. We don't want to be extorted by these gang members. So we go to the police department and says, we want you to get rid of these gang members. He says, well, I can't. Why not? I don't have the money to do so. Okay. Well, how much would it cost? Well, let's see. He does the math and says, well, I need to hire this number of people to get rid of a gang this size. So that's going to end up costing you about $20 a month out of your taxes, you know, if spread evenly. So me as the business owner, I'm like, okay, well, that's more than I'm paying for protection. Why would I pay you to do that if it's not cheaper? Yeah. Okay. So and now if there's other benefits that come along with that, maybe I can make the cost benefit to say, oh, well, now I won't have to deal with any other gang members because that would be the next logical step is another gang comes up. This right. That's the thing. Yeah. It's going to cost you $20 a month over some period. Um, because eventually the the total cost of dissolving the gang is going to be absorbed, right? Or but, paid for. Um, yeah. But but no no no, it's not over some period. It's well, I'm going to need this forever. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Because yeah. that's how government. Yeah. yeah. Now, if there was an agreement where it said we're going to round up a posse, and we're going to pay these posse members X dollars when it's done, if it's a one time deal. Yeah then maybe it makes sense, but I've never voluntarily raised my taxes for something that all of a sudden it went down when the demand was met. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and, and I think just to, just to plug a hole that, that, uh, some of our listeners might be considering, like there's obviously the, um, the safety concern of having a gang or multiple gangs running uh, a racket in your, in your town, so you might assign some sort of value to, uh, to your your personal safety. You don't want a, a, a gunfight breaking out in your business because the two gangs ran up against each other or something. Right. Um. But this can, uh, all these numbers that 
that you just said are, are just made up. Sure. So yeah. All, all we have to do is just substitute it for, okay, well, it's going to cost that much more for the police to actually break up the, the gang activity. Yeah. Right. And, but at least then you get to make the cost benefit and go, well, is it really that bad? Like, is it actually protection money? Right. That That's the, that's the core idea here. Yeah. Is it, and not only that, but hear me out. This gang will also let me do illegal things like sell alcohol in the 1920s and make a lot of money doing that. Whereas if I pay to boost these police, they're going to take... Now they're going to be cracking down on my moonshine business. Yeah. Yeah. So why would I pay for the police? <laughs> but you end up with, I think, the way that all governments kind of get started is it's a, it's a bunch of gangs competing for, you know, as a racket. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, fine. Human nature. I'm going to just finally just pick one and say, all right, we as a group are just going to pick this one to just be the gang that runs this area. Because if it's just one gang running this area and they're not that bad or they're not as bad as the rest and it's cheaper than the rest, fine. We'll back this one to remove all the others because dealing with one entity is easier than dealing with multiple. Well, yeah, and you end up with less violence. And you end up with less violence, exactly. Well, After the initial violence of... Eliminating the other gangs. Eliminating the other gangs. Once you're down to one gang, well, they're not going to go shoot at themselves. That's stupid. Well... Probably not, but uh, not on purpose. Not on purpose, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, and so it's just a it's just a way of picking who you want to be able to. Because you could easily just turn around and say, "Okay, hey, mob, you're charging me ten bucks a month. I know that, but I'm also having to pay five to this guy. What if we just made you the police now? So now instead of paying fifteen a month total, I can just pay ten a month. So I'm saving money. Not I'm saving money over my current situation. I would have been saving more previous. But if you can offer me some value, since you've got all these thugs that you would use to rough me up, why don't you just use those for other things and we'll just keep paying you that money to keep other people out. And that's what that's what you end up with, you know. It, it's it's kind of weird when you just put it down to cost-benefit like that. It's like, well, the police are essentially just the gang we chose to be the gang, you know. that The, 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 gang, the actual gang that, air quotes, protects us. This gang wears badges, yes. But this gang wears badges. And this gang is legitimate, air quote, because yeah. they're the only yes. gang, yes. Chosen I don't know by the people chosen by the people um a gang of the people by the people and for the people <laughs> mm-hmm. the american thugocracy but anyway <laughs> just, yeah i don't know it's 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 weird that that exists you know like because it, it's just weird to me when you put it in terms like this it seems so simple you know, and I'm sure it's not ever this simple, no. right? I mean, I'm not stupid, but at the same this time, is literally like textbook. That's that, that's yeah. we're in textbook land right now. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're in textbook land. Welcome so, to economics 101. Because I mean, taking the real devil's advocate here and saying, well, what about the the government? Okay, back to our original analogy: the government told you you can't be in business for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Why do they choose to do that? You know. What is their incentive for keeping you shut down? Because you can't pay taxes either while you're shut down. Right? Right. And it's not that you can't. It's that you're yeah. not making any money to pay the, taxes the incentive on. Is you're not the only taxpayer. Right. So they're afraid of getting voted out of office by the other taxpayers if they don't do this. Right. So you're kind of at the mercy of the mob at this point, you know? Yes. And unfortunately for you since we do things democratically, as long as there are more of them than there are of you, you're just going to probably just going to get their way. Yeah. Probably just going to get their way. Right now. You could always make the appeal that, well, but now these people that aren't paying me to be in business are the same ones who are telling me to be shut down. Right. So 
is it really that is it really the government's fault that you're being shut down or is it the business ecosystem because your customers assuming all your customers are of the same area and they're paying taxes for that government and they're also mm-hmm. the people that use your service right well if they're paying taxes for the government to shut you down don't they also want you to be shut down and wouldn't patronize your business anyway, therefore also giving it no value. And then we run up against a fun thing called human psychology. Human psychology. In which, yes, they would totally still go to your restaurant, even if it's dangerous. I mean, unless it were just overt. Like, obviously, if there's, like, flames licking the ceilings, when they walk in, they see it, they're, like, they're going to leave. But <laughs> Right. But it, it, it is weird. It's, it's, it's the people are looking for an out. Like, well, I, it's not that I don't want to go to that restaurant. I do. But I need, I'm paying someone, I'm paying for someone to tell me no. Yeah. And licking that boot, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But but the fact that it's a democracy is only 51% of the people have to lick the boot, you know? And then yeah. it's all of a sudden what everyone has to do, you know? And the government has to crack down because they need 51% to, to make that call. But the other 49 that could have, you know, and, and I think that's another interesting scenario. Let's, let, okay. Let's make, let's, I have a new analogy for you that I think is going to be real spicy and good. Okay. Since we've got about 10 minutes left. Okay. I run a gun store. Okay. <clears throat> you think you see where this is going. I run a gun store and I sell all kinds of guns. And it just so happens that only 49% of the population owns guns and wants to have them. The other 51% do not personally own any and do not want any. And then there's a gun crime committed. Now the 51% says, well, it's this the gun store here that's causing the problem. You know, they sold that gun to that guy who did that awful thing. We're going to lock you down or we're going to make it so that you cannot run your business through the government. And these same 51% wouldn't have been the people that patronized your business anyway. But what about the 49% that did now having a decision made for them by the 51%? And I think that's the problem is that these it's not just this one person that's now no longer able to pay it's the 49% that w- you're you're removing that 49%'s ability to spawn and operate businesses cuz very very seldom is it that a business services 100% of the population unless you're the only gas station in town which is very rarely the case you know th- as long as there's s- significant competition you know very, very seldom is it a one business that serves everybody, you know. Um, but you create a vacuum when you do that, I think. You know, if 51% of the population says, all right, we're shutting this gun store down. Well, now there's all this money that was wanting to be spent on that, and that demand's still there. You know, the demand doesn't just disappear because yeah. this... I, I hate the argument that, oh, the demand's there because the supply's there. No, that's not how that works. The supply no. is what the changes. The supply wouldn't have gotten there. Exactly. I didn't think people would want to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. The supply follows the demand a lot of the time. It's not the other way around, you know. Um, Obviously, there must be at least a little supply for people to decide whether or not they want something. Sure. But but, that's not sustainable if there's no demand. But the thing is, all you have to do is have that little bit of supply one time. And that demand doesn't go away when the supply goes away. Right. So. Well, yeah. And you you don't necessarily even need a supply, as we can see with things like crowdfunding websites. You don't even need to actually have a supply to gauge public interest and get money to make something happen to bring about the supply. Exactly. Like you you can gauge demand without prior supply to spurn right. the demand. I have this idea. How many of you would be willing to pay for it? Okay. 
pay for it and then we'll make it happen and now it's a product that people can buy at a store which i personally think is one of the greatest things to come about in the modern age is your your ability to not just do surveys and hope right i don't have to go sink millions of dollars into r&d uh and uh and uh, fabrication to uh to manufacture however many of these things i need to possibly be able to turn a profit on it and then send it to market and it just flop right like that's a huge waste of time and resources when i can just ask people for money if they actually want it yeah and then say okay now i have all this money now i have the millions that i would need to spend on r&d i'll spend it on r&d and we'll make this thing i'll see you next year we'll have it ready yep and then when it's yeah and then when it's ready you send it out and then you see now that you have all the tooling and everything done to manufacture this product now also it's a lot easier to get investors on board when you're like look i just got five hundred thousand dollars from a bunch of randos on the internet to make this happen people want this invest in my business right and we can go even further you know yeah um and you essentially just let the people decide and it doesn't even have to be 51 percent of the population either you know you could just because like i said most businesses do not rely on the majority of population for business it's a very small amount you know there's a there's an interesting uh, i think it's a zips law that talks about a zipf i think yeah the 80 20 rule essentially where like Something like, tw- you know, 20% of your patronage is responsible for 80% of your business. You know, like that's a, it's I not, I don't think that's actually Zip's law, but it's close. Yeah, It's close. It's, it's And it's not even a hard law. It's just a, it's just seems to be what happens in statistics, but I believe it, you know, because you have those repeat customers that they're going to keep coming in and buying your product over and over and over again. And they're the ones you want to keep, you know, but you look at that in the context of a 51% democracy you you either have to have a coalition of these 20 percenters to get up to the 60 percent you need which that's not ever going to happen because people aren't just single issue consumers or single product consumers there's overlap you know um but it, it is interesting to, to see how that occurs but back to my gun store analogy it's well i'm out of business and the supply is now gone but the demand's still there and it's in that type of arrangement you often see illegal activity start to begin um uh, take it back to CGP Cray's piracy analogy. Pirates did not exist because people are evil. Pirates existed because of the for- market forces on them. You know, there is a very, there there is a considerable supply and a very high demand for that supply. The risk, the risk benefit. There, there are there. people who are willing to take the risk to get the huge benefit out of it. Yeah, exactly. So the and the more you stretch those two things out of proportions, the harder the market wants to recorrect. And so, why not just start selling guns out of the back of my van illegally? Like if I know I could make that money, or even worse, say there's you might more, even be able to make more money doing this too. Yeah, well, that's what we seem to see is what happens. You know, to use a real world example, every time in the United States gun legislation is proposed or anything that might hamper the supply of firearms it drives up demand yeah, people scramble and clean off the gun store shelves exactly yeah. and it's gangbusters for that you know it's big money um so yeah i don't but the government's still responsible at the end at the end all be all they're responsible for creating this imbalance and then you could even say in a perfect world it's the citizenry that's responsible in the end all so what i don't see I, the way you can resolve all of this i think going back to basics is just let people assume risks for themselves you know don't i think anytime a government ends in, it inflates the it's inflating the power of certain individuals over others depending on the action being taken 
um, and people are assuming risk for which they have no, they, they don't have to pay for it. You know, like that you could say, okay, well the government's assuming this risk, the government has to pay for it. Well, when the government does that, if they turn around and said, okay, citizens pay up, you know, we, we, we're having to spend tax dollars on this. If that were the case and it were that transparent, I think you would see a populace a lot more hesitant to step in and make that decision. But because that's not the current paradigm in which we live, you have people essentially running around unaccountable voting for whatever they want without having to pay the consequences of what they're voting for, you know, and then the government's acting in a way that it can be irresponsible for things, even though it absolutely should be. Um, and so the only way to, I think, to rectify the situation is to hold people accountable for their, for their decisions. And if you let them do that, it strongly discourages the majority from taking actions that would affect minorities. Um, and thus also allowing these minorities to take responsibility for themselves and do the risk benefit. And, and cause it, no, no one would have a problem if this business said, well, I'm going to stay open. And then no one went and patronized that business. That business is going to go out of business anyway. Yeah. No big deal. Um, and it, it's just all clean to clean up. But as soon as you bring in an agent that doesn't have to be responsible for itself, or a, or a, a entity that doesn't have to be responsible, it royally throws off everything else because it becomes a sink or a source for problems, you know, on the system where he's like, well, I can just sink all responsibility out of the system. And then once one entity doesn't have to be responsible, all of the downstream entities from that no longer have to be responsible either, which in this case of the government in a representative democracy is the people don't have to be responsible either. And then once these people don't have to be responsible in some ways, it's just, you start this feedback yep. loop where no one ends up having to be responsible for anything until you run out of people to be accountable. And then at that point, when the market hard corrects itself, it's, painful and destructive because it's having to recorrect the whole system so anyway it was an interesting analogy uh, that, was, that was an interesting story you brought up i'm glad we covered that today yeah so long story short um i think people should just have to be responsible that's all that's all that has to happen for things to maintain balance in my opinion so and by people i mean the government that those people that represents those people if it truly represents those people then it should be responsible and those people should also be responsible. Maybe that's a topic. I think, I think that is just uh, one, one last thing about, uh, about the, the consequences of like, if, if the government has to be responsible for um, shutting down businesses and pay them like th this, this does bring about a kind of uh, aesthetically pleasing balance that like, if we want to say in a democracy that the government represents the people, then, of course, because the government is having to pay in this case, it's going to have to tax the people for that. It, the people <clears throat> literally pay for what the people do. I think that's aesthetically pleasing. Absolutely. That's all. Okay. Philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.